So continuing in Paul's letter to the church in Rome to real people in a real city, people that he loves, they are loved by God, by faith alone, through the power of God's grace alone, and they are, they are called, loved and called, they are the saints of God. And so Paul says to you, look, in Christ, in all that Jesus is and all that he has done, grace to you and peace to you through these words. And Paul has now come to the end. He's concluding that first movement, of the great four-movement symphony that is the letter to the Romans. Paul, from the end of chapter 1 all the way up to 320, is discussing the problem of our human sinfulness, man's condition. But as we hear the sermon this morning, I, this is really important to me, as you hear this, you, yes, I'm talking to you. You ever feel like, the pastor's looking at me. I'm looking at you right now. As you hear this, just remember the songs that we've sang. His mercy is more. And there's a good friend with us this morning that told me one time, he said, you know, as when this church was planted, when it was founded, we envisioned a, a flag, a banner over this church, a flag flying over this church, and it would have one thing and one thing only on it, Christ. This would be Christ's church. And so as we dig a little deeper this morning, as we conclude on the problem of human sin, I want you to remember that. That this is not only what we have in common, Christ, but this is the center of our hope as we attempt to understand what Paul is telling us. We struggle deeply to be faithful. I mean, we sang it already, but in that wonderful Jordan Peterson, not Jordan Peterson, whoops, Andrew Peterson. That's a different Peterson. In Andrew Peterson's song, Freudian Slip, <laughs> um, and that, that first line, do you feel the world is broken? And that's not so, you know, Christians can be humdrum, Scrooge, and oh, I'm cynical, and everything's broken, and sin, sin, sin. That's not what that's about. It's about when you turn on the news, and you look out into your world, when you look into this city, when you see people who are hurting and broken and you want to help and you feel helpless and then you look inside and you see the same things. We joke about this. You know, we do our confession and assurance every week. Happy are those whose sins are forgiven. Now take a moment to confess. It's like I confess the same things every week. I want to change. I want to grow. But it's in there. Do I feel the world is broken? My world is broken. I do. I can't fix the problem of my faith. But I know that God is faithful. And so I want to tell you this morning about the fastest growing church in the world. The fastest growing church in the world per capita. It's in a region of the world which you would not expect. Indeed, it's in a, it's in a place in the world where some of us, given our citizenship in this country, geopolitically speaking, would be quite opposed to maybe anything good coming out of a place like this. There's tension there. And yet, as of 2016, based on the research of missiologists, this was the fastest growing per capita church in the world. Not a single church, but the church in that region. They had been given the Bible. They believed the Bible. They confessed their sin. They were deeply persecuted. They are deeply persecuted. To be a Christian in this place, to say, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, could actually cost you 
your life. But their story, the story of this church, is a story of God's faithfulness. God's breaking into the place of sin and brokenness and making all things new. And when we get to the end of the sermon, I'll tell you where that church is. <laughs> See what I did? I pulled a Doug. I pulled a Doug. Oh, man. So how's St. How's Paul going to conclude uh, this movement, this section on sin? He's already told us that the Gentiles, the pagans, obviously can't save themselves. And, and I commend to you any entry-level history book. Assyria tried, Babylon tried, Rome tried, and now we go and visit Rome and take little pictures. They're all these, it's, not, it's not to deprecate these societies and the good that they did, but Paul's point is, look, wherever the Gentiles are seeking power on their own terms, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, it ultimately leads to moral decay, it leads to spiritual entropy, and it leads to death. Man cannot save himself as the Gentile empires continue by seemingly eternal recurrence to make clear. But wait a minute, then Paul turns to the religious people. Paul loves, just like Jesus, he doesn't like the religious churchy people to get away with anything. And he says, wait, until you are quick, little church in Rome, little minority, marginalized, persecuted church in Rome, there's only about 200 people that Paul's writing to, until you're quick to judge the pagans, don't you forget, don't you forget that you better wait to withhold that judgment because you need to see into the mirror. You need to know that, that you judging others cannot help you and the law cannot save you. So put your little jump to conclusions judgment mat and your sharpened pair of circumcision scissors away for just a hot minute. The pagans who suppress the truth and the religious who find their justification in works and judgment, these are two sides of the same coin. And as the old Psalms tell us, and Paul quotes all these old Psalms here, Psalm 50, 51, 53, which we read this morning, he quotes from Isaiah in our text. All the old Psalms tell the same story, and that is that the problem isn't outside of us, it's within us. It's a problem of our worship. It's a problem of our hearts. And that's the hardest thing to admit because, guys, if it was just behavior modification, we could do that. If it was just read this book and follow these 10 steps and modify your behavior, then you could save yourself. But Paul and the gospel of Jesus remind us that, no, the, the problem is much deeper than that. Our worship, our little G-gods, we all have them. Man, we, we live in a world full of temples, Amazon Prime is the most glorious temple there is in 2019. I'm one click away from the dopamine of satisfaction. I offer up my green sacrifice, and in return, they send me their blessings. We have our own issues, individualism, consumerism, the injustice that run rampant in our own cities. But the problem is worship and little g-gods, and even our words betray us. Sweet little lies that we tell ourselves, that we can fix ourselves. Paul says, no, we need the truth. And the truth is that all are fallen. All are in need of a savior. And I just want to commend this to us. By the way, because we don't come here, you all look pretty good. I see some pastels. It's getting warm. That's nice. But we don't come here to play church. We don't come here to play Jesus religion. Okay, if we don't need a savior... If we don't actually need a savior to save us from real sin that really would condemn us and separate us from the love of the Father, then what are we doing here? 
And yet we believe those lies. Paul says, no, hear the truth. All are fallen and our band-aids don't work. All are fallen, but God is faithful to the fallen. And so that's his main point. I believe in this text, this weird text in Romans 3, which starts with, are the Jews any better off? And then a couple objections, then all are condemned, and then the Psalms, and no one is justified. It seems hodgepodge, but I believe the unifying principle here is this. God is faithful to the fallen. So first, we need to examine, honestly, our faithlessness. The problem isn't the lie. The problem is that we work really hard to either forget it or try to believe it. Paul says no. And it's a universal problem. I just want to ask us this question. It is 2019, is it not? I mean, it is 2019. And as I look around this room, I see, you know, some decent-looking people with time, quite a bit of talent, some treasure. It's 2019, and I just want to know, as I was wrestling with this text this week, why can't we fix all this junk in the world? Why can't we fix all the, all the stuff that's, that's broken? All the injustice and unrighteousness and hurt and pain and wounds and shame that we are all well aware of. Now, the world, I believe, according to some metrics, is objectively better in some ways. There are less people per capita in poverty than there used to be. There's some really wonderful things happening in the world. So we're not going to sit here and, you know, say, oh, everything's, you know, doom and gloom and fire and brimstone. We don't do that around here. The only fires we have is where you light a fire in your fire pit, invite your neighbors over and party with them. At the same time, I mean, with the food that we throw away in this one little country every year, we could feed the whole world. I mean, come on, the food that I throw away. Now when you go to a Mexican food restaurant, they bring you like the king medieval platter of food. No one can eat this much food. And yet in our abundance, we throw food away while still people starve in the world. If we wanted to, we could clean the world. If we wanted to, we could heal the world. And the problem is that we know better. Look, we have sufficient education. We have sufficient technology and we have sufficient resources to solve these problems. And yet there seems to be something deeper in the heart of man and the nature of sin that puts us now in 2019 with, as Solomon hath said, nothing new under the sun. So Paul tells us in this text, he reminds us, the problem is not your behavior. It's not behavior modification. The problem is, is nature. The problem is that we are sons and daughters of Adam and our first parents in choosing sin have now passed on a nature of sin to us and I don't like that. I want to believe that I'm the master and commander of my own ship. And if I want to help myself, save myself and change myself, I have the power to do that. And yet, don't you so often feel like Paul in Romans 7? I know better. You know better. You know that if you think Mean thoughts about somebody, Jesus says, you're murdering them in your heart. And yet you still continue to drive on the roads of Santa Fe in the summer. You know better. The things you want to do, you don't do. The things you don't want to do, you keep on doing. And what's worse, we keep on doing them. And then we pretty ourselves up in the powder room of Sunday morning church. And so many of us are living in, in hiding. And shackled. Without freedom. The problem is our nature. We know we're broken. And then we want to hide our brokenness. 
Irony of ironies, Paul says no. No one is righteous. And you have to remember that this is a really rich, pregnant, and packed Old Testament word. Righteousness. In the Hebrew mind, and Paul was Jewish. He's a Jewish theologian. He studied under Gamaliel. He's got the, the Old Testament memorized. The idea of righteousness would have been the complete holiness and perfection of God. God is righteous as he faces the world, and humans, because of their sin, are unrighteous. But it's not just God's perfect character, it's also how God acts in the world. God is a God of justice. And the problem is, we, we're very slow to, to beat our weapons into plowshares. I would love it if every human being on earth would sign a contract, and we would take all our weapons and melt them down and turn them into gardening tools and bring forth the new heavens and the new earth right now. And then if you wanted to go have fun in heaven, you could go to the heavenly gun range and everything is safe and Jesus has a whistle, you know, so no one gets out of hand, all right? But that's not the world we live in. The more we learn, the more we grow, the more we make things beautiful and new and the more that we find ways for man to be inhumane to man. No one is justified, Paul says. No one can stand before a holy and perfect God and say, I am in the right based on what I have Done. Now, Paul's using a lot of courtroom language here. And I don't want us to get lost in the weeds. I want you to know this. That just like in the ancient world, most of these people would have witnessed or at least seen the results of a crucifixion. Most of the folks in Rome in particular were very familiar with the courts. People went to court all the time. People went to courts to settle disputes. There were judges, there were juries, the courts were public. People could publicly go to the trials. It was a very advanced legal system. So Paul is using all these legal terms, not in a vacuum, but as a missionary. Because don't think for a second Paul is just some kind of theologian. He's not any less than that, but Paul's a missionary. His goal is for the church in Rome to be healthy and unified in Christ, not their Jewishness or their Gentileness, not their history or their current privilege or money or state in society, but all in Christ to be unified so that they can provide resources to get him to Spain. So Paul, like a good missionary, uses examples that are in their context, the Roman legal system. We would have examples that would apply to our context as well. But the point stands. None of us can come to God and put God in the dock. None of us can be judge and lawyer and say to God, how dare you? Look at all the good we have done because he's perfect and we're not. And we're well aware that even if we have done some good, it's not sufficient to stand in the place of his holiness. How could it be? He's just. So the problem is not our behavior, but our nature. And Paul says, no one does good. And when you hear that, you should be like, wait a minute, Paul, simmer down. I have a lot of friends, including a lot of non-church friends, people that I really care about, some that don't go to church and they're better people than me, who do a lot of good things. So that's not what Paul means. He doesn't mean that people don't do in common grace here in this beautiful planet many instances of good deeds. What he means is when it comes to our ability to bring our goodness to God as an offering that is sufficient for our infractions, it's never enough. Now that is bad news. That's really bad news because in a lot of the other worldviews and religions of the world, what you find is a, is a contract between you and the gods. You do some good and they'll do some good. You do enough and they'll do enough. If they're having a good day and you're being good, then they'll probably meet you in the middle if that's what they feel like doing. 
So in one sense, this is way worse news than you might find in, in, in the crockpot of other options. But it's exactly what tees up the good news to be so much better. God is faithful to the fallen. We hear these things and we, we cry out for help. Are the gods any help? The little g gods? I just want to run through a couple options here. Some that are very near and dear to our own city. Are the gods any help? Injustice is a problem. Look around you. You can't bury your head in the sand. The world is broken. We know it. We have issues. I know it and you know it. So here's some options. Little g gods. First of all, option one, you're fine. You're fine. This is ridiculous. I can't believe you're still weird enough to go to a church on Sunday when you could be at brunch right now. You're so weird. I mean, even for Santa Fe, you're weird. And you're fine. You're fine. I mean, look, there, there's no God. There's nothing to see here. Don't worry about all that stuff. Think about you. It's about self-help, self-esteem, living your best life now, self-actualizing. Be happy. Cut out that bad stuff. You're fine. By the way, one scholar puts it this way. That version of naive atheism is the epitome of economic and social privilege. Those are the words of someone who's never suffered. Here's another option. The world really is suffering, and I don't like it. The, the world really is suffering. And so let's hide the suffering people away in sterile spaces, the older you get, the more hidden you become. We're going to hide everybody away in sterile spaces, and I'm going to run from the suffering. I'm going to climb myself up, tooth and claw, to the top of that temple, and then rather than think about the suffering, because who could do anything about that? Even if I sold everything I had, I couldn't do anything about that. I'm just going to escape. I'm going to empty myself and send all the bad energy out to the crystals. I mean, not that we have any of that here, but, you know. Or here's another version of it. You see those suffering fools? Dominate them. Why are they suffering? Obviously because they made bad choices. Obviously because they're weak and less than. If they were strong, they'd figure it out. Look, man, dog eat dog. The world is red and tooth and claw. Sorry, but nature. Dominate them. Yeah, they're suffering, and suffering therefore becomes an opportunity to leverage and increase your own power. And finally, the, the religious solution, we just need more rules. We need more law. The problem with the law is the law can show you your failure, but it can never heal you of your failures. Going to the law for healing is like appealing to be justified by the police officer who just caught you in the act. The law says, do more. Work harder. Make better sacrifices. Yeah, you know, I, virgins are good on Thursdays, but I'd really prefer a few children on Mondays. Do more. Offer up more. Work harder. And then you will be justified. At least you hope you will today. And maybe it'll stick. Maybe it won't. So this is our problem. These little G-gods which live within, which we hear so loudly, we can't shift blame. Man, and we can't escape. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, free or slave, Scythian, man, woman, Greek. Paul says, 
we can't fix this problem of our faithlessness. And you'd think in 2019 there'd be enough money and resources and education for humanity to keep faith. But apparently we cannot fix our faithlessness. We need a faithful one. So we come back to the words of the song we sang. The badness of the bad news is beyond our repair. You don't need medicine or a Band-Aid. You need the Holy Spirit of God to take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. You need the power of the resurrection. You're not lying there, you know, tired after a long day of work saying, you know, give me some medicine. You're dead in your sin and your trespasses. You need the power of a resurrection. We need a faithful one. Is anyone worthy? Man, when you stand before the holiness and perfection of God, and again, this is hard for me. You think I get up here and I'm like, ooh, I have some weird, like, I don't know, masochistic, like, I can't wait to preach this. And I'm not here to beat anyone up. Church is not a place of guilt and shame. This is hard news. But the Bible clearly teaches that unless a faithful one who is worthy, who is whole, who is able to open the scroll of our holy God is provided, we are in big trouble. And yet when you get down to the badness of the bad news, you get what's so amazing about the good news. And let me read this quote by Tim Keller. I love it. When you realize that the antidote to being bad, to our badness, to the problem of our sinfulness, which we can't run from or escape from, the antidote to being bad is not just being more good. When you realize that the antidote to being bad is not just being more good, you are on the very brink of understanding the grace of God. The antidote is not more of our goodness, but in place of goodness and badness, the grace of God. Put another way, and don't forget, church people, only bad people go to heaven. Only bad people go to heaven. And only bad people go to heaven by the perfect, completed, and finished goodness of a faithful Savior. And that, by the way, is the only thing that can motivate us to now live faithfully. That is the good news, that God is faithful to the fallen. And if you read this Romans passage, you better ask me. You got to bring your Bibles, because I could just be making stuff up. Bring your Bibles, read them, be like the Bereans. Is this passage really saying that? I, I mean, is the main point, you said the main point is God is faithful to the fallen. And it doesn't exactly seem like that's what Paul's doing. I really think that's Paul's main point. I think Paul is saying, look, the Jews can't save themselves. They have the oracles. They have circumcision. They have history. They have all these beautiful things. We shouldn't despise any of it. But, but you can't save yourself. Gentiles, you're a hot mess, so we won't even go there. That's obvious. And everyone on planet Earth is laid low in need before a holy God in their unfaithfulness. But God is faithful to the fallen. And even when we struggle, even when we're unfaithful, let God be true. Let God be true. Can our struggling and wrestling nullify God's promises? No, let God be true. And every one of us a liar. So I want to look at just two things, two ways to apply this quickly. Two ways that we can apply the faithfulness of God to our fallenness. His mercy and grace in place of our faithlessness. Because I do think that's what this passage is really about. First of all, so two things. First of all, 
God is faithful and true to all and through his church. That's it. Now, I mean, this is unbelievable. We're, we're so steeped in this. We've heard this so many times that it just doesn't even shake us. It doesn't rock us. It doesn't scandalize us at all. But, but you have to realize that, that so many other worldviews and belief systems are based on exclusivity. The Jews were a prime example. Ethnic Jews, historically receivers of the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all the way up to Moses. We're the chosen ones. You're not. Sorry, that's how it is. So at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon the church, and there are people gathered there from many nations to go out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, this is God's way of saying, this good news is now for everybody. We like to hang out with people like us. We do. We like to talk about the hard stuff, you know, religion and politics and sports and the weather, with people like us in general and people that kind of agree with us. We do. But you have to understand what is so radical about Pentecost is that now the Holy Spirit of God has come and they are speaking each one in their own language and the gospel will go to the very ends of the earth. So it's not just about local deities or local gods or millions of gods and you better make sure you pick the right one or you have to read the holy book in the right language. None of those things apply. The Holy Spirit comes And the first fruits, the harvest of Pentecost is that God says to his people, I want everyone. I want people from the whole world. I want every tribe and tongue and nation. I want every socioeconomic status, every ethnicity. I want all people to be mine. And he fulfills his word to Abraham. Your children will be as many as the stars in the sky. And they will be united across languages and skin color And every barrier, they will be united in the fact that God is faithful to the fallen. And God accomplishes this through his church, through his bride. This last week, we do this on the first Tuesday of the month. I had the thing where we gather with the pastors for prayer up at the cross of the martyrs. And it's um, it's a really neat time. Guys from all over the city, different denominations, And what do we have in common? Basically, the Apostles' Creed and not much more. (laughs) And our love for food. Pastors love food, obviously. And we pray and we eat. And we, you know, no one is allowed to ruin it by adding extra rules or by suggesting we do some big citywide event together. It's just come and pray and eat. And I don't know why, probably because I'm as human as you are, but this last Tuesday, I just had a lot of anxiety. And I asked these guys to pray over me. And it was amazing. You know, Pastor... Ron Sebesta from the Light at Mission Viejo, Eric from the Grove, Pastor Victor from the Baptist Church down south. He's praying in Spanish and these men are putting their hands on me and they're praying over me. And I'm telling you in that moment, I genuinely felt the Holy Spirit come and and lift some of that burden. That's how it's supposed to be. The Holy Spirit comes to all and now the Spirit seeks to work through us, his church. So we need to be close to each other. We need to touch each other. We need to hug each other. We need to know each other. We need to move toward each other. Because the Spirit comes to all, but he comes through his bride. We cannot fight sin alone. Man, if you try to fight sin alone, you are are dead. You are done for. There are no John Wayne Christians. Do you understand? 
That's not Christianity. That's American individualism plus American civil religion baptized with a cross on your neck. That's not Christianity. So go to brunch. No, we need each other. And we need the whole world. Remember the fastest growing church? I'm going to end here. The fastest growing church in the world per capita in 2019 was in the nation of Iran. I don't, I don't even know if I can believe it. I don't even know if I want to believe it. I do, but I, I had to Google it like four times. And we know how trustworthy Google is, so okay. Look, here's this from, from uh, one of the more scholarly articles I could find. Despite continued hostility from the late 60s and 70s, post-Iranian revolution until now, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. How did this happen? Yes, I'm asking that question. Because unfortunately, these stories don't hit the mainstream news for me. Two factors have contributed to this openness. First, violence in the name of Islam and other religions has caused widespread disillusionment with the regime and led many Iranians to question their beliefs. Second, many Iranian Christians, even at the potential cost of their lives, have continued to boldly and faithfully tell others about Christ. As a result, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years. This is unbelievable. More Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries combined. That is what Pentecost means. That is what the faithfulness of God to the fallen means. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, some estimates from within the country itself say there are over a million. Whatever the exact number, many Iranians are turning to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior because of the message of grace. In fact, last year, the Mission Research Organization Operation World named Iran as having the fastest growing church in the world. According to the same organization, the second fastest growing church, this is from 2016, is in Afghanistan. And get this, get this, the second fastest growing church is in Afghanistan, and many Afghanis are being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ in large part because of Iranians who see their brothers with a similar language as a fruitful mission field. Unbelievable. I just want us to marvel at the faithfulness of God. We are sinners. No one is righteous. You cannot save yourself. But will you just marvel at the faithfulness of God in your own life and in the world now? I, I, know, I know it doesn't make the news. Some of you are going to be like, I've got this one. Okay, send it to me. But it doesn't make the normal news. And yet in Iran... Jesus is calling his people to himself through the Holy Spirit and sending them now into Afghanistan to share this great news. The law cannot save you. The little gods cannot save you. You cannot save yourself. But God is faithful to the fallen. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you for how faithful you are. And it's because you are faithful that we want to respond in joyful obedience. Of course, we know we're not saved by the law. No, we can't be justified. We can't stand in the right before you 
based on what we've done. We know that, but Jesus stands in our place. And because of grace, Lord, we, we want to take this good news to our friends and our family and our neighbors. We want to take it to all the world. And Lord, we want to bring it to each other as well. We want to pray. We want to lay on hands. We want to listen. We want to walk with one another and raise each other up. We marvel, God, at your faithfulness to us. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to express that great faithfulness through us for the whole world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.